pray about and serious about what I preach on Sundays, Sunday nights, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Um, sometimes God will seem to move me to do a sermon I'm surprised about. In fact, numbers of times. I get surprised about what he moves me to do. I'm not much of a special day preacher. He just never seemed to move me to preach on, like today I could preach on loyalty and patriotism and love of country, and I've done that. But I'll usually do it of another day that has no, no particular holiday. But today I want to preach to you about a principle, uh, really a principle of the Bible. Uh it can be worded a few different ways. I word it, there, there is an end to God's grace and mercy. I want to show you in the Bible a few examples of how people push God too far. You say, why is that necessary? Because I believe we live in an age where there has been a false teaching that has affected the believers all across America. There's been a uh, and I, can't, I hate to say this, but there's been a, uh, an overemphasis, if it's possible, and it is, an overemphasis of the grace of God and an underemphasis of the holiness of God. And what, that, what does that produce? That produces a generation that takes God as a patsy and figures like he'll never really do anything about what I do, doesn't really care about what I do, and because he's, whatever I do, uh, he's just going to forgive me and I'll go down the road. Uh, I had a young man, 26 years old, been in Bible college. And he was single, young man. And I, we were talking to me, and he was wanting to say a few things to me about some of the troubles he was having. having. And he said uh, every about six months in his life, he goes out and has some immorality with a woman. Every six months, I said, every six months you do this over and over and over again? He says, well... He says, you know, I know God's going to forgive me. Now, I'm preaching for that kind of mentality today, which is a, not a biblical mentality. It's not Bible-based. You may find it in a book called The Grace Awakening. You'll find it in that book, which I do not recommend you reading. Uh, I believe in the grace of God as much as anybody believes in the grace of God. I am standing here this morning as an example of the grace of God. You are here this morning as a born-again believer in this room. You're here as an example of the grace of God. Nobody would, nobody would diminish the idea that God has much and great grace. Man, nobody in the right mind would diminish that. But also, you cannot, you cannot ignore what I'm going to preach on this morning either, which is also found in the Bible very plainly and very clearly taught. It's about there is an end to the mercy, and the grace of God. There's an end to it. And, and there's warnings, clear warnings, both Old and New Testament. So throughout the Bible from front to back, there's clear warnings about it. Take your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, if you would. If you don't have time to go there, that's okay. You can look at this later, or you can, uh, you can go to our website and look at this. iTunes will be, it'll be up on iTunes eventually. And uh, you can listen to it and take notes. I'd rather have you not take notes, to be honest with you. As a preacher, that may sound crazy to you, but I'd rather have you not take notes and listen. It'd be better for you to listen to me and to get what I'm saying than to while you're taking a note, you're behind me like two thoughts. You're taking that note, 
on two thoughts ago, and you missed the thought I'm talking about. You with me on that? I've been to college a long time. I used to take notes as a professor, and they made you take notes, and you needed to take notes, and you learned how to take notes quickly and fast, but not everybody's that way. And so you may miss out on something God has for you by taking notes. That's my little spiel. <laughs> I guess that's my little spiel on pay attention to what I'm saying and don't worry about what, where you're going to eat lunch, if the restaurant's going to be busy, or when is this guy going to quit. I won't go long today. Uh, what, what time is it actually? Do we, is it 11? I cannot read that. It's bad when the preacher can't read the clock. I think it's 1130. I got a little bit of glare on that clock back there. Uh, you better get rid of that or you may be here at 1230. But anyways, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 16, 17 is an interesting place in the New, in the New Testament given to us. And so talking about uh, Esau, you remember the two people, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was, uh, Jacob was a man, I don't like, I just tell you straight up and down, I don't like Jacob. But God did. And there was something about Jacob God appreciated and loved his spirit. And Esau, there was something about Esau. Esau was just kind of bent on doing wrong. He, there are people like Jacob and there are people like Esau. And Esau, you know, remember when he sold his birthright, he was the firstborn, so he got to, be, got to have, by God's order, a double portion of whatever his mom and dad had when they died. And he was hungry, he came off, and he, he was hungry, and his brother Jacob was a cook. And uh, smooth-skinned guy, you know, inside office guy. And Esau was the outside hairy guy, rough and tough guy. And Esau was hungry and said to Jacob, I need something to eat or I'll perish. Well, you know better than that. that hey, you can do without food. I go to the doctor and they'll, they'll, they'll apologize to me for having me fast for 12 hours before a test. I said, that's a piece of cake, man. We fast. We fasted many times seven full days on water, just water. Some of our folks fast 14 days, just water. You do not die. You may want to die, but you don't die. So Esau, I don't know what that was about. He just didn't respect his birthright much. Jacob, he was a, he was a conniving guy. And he says, well, sell me your birthright, and I'll give you some food. And Esau didn't care about his birthright, didn't care about what God gave him. He said, okay, I'll sell you my birthright. You can have the double portion, but I want something to eat. He sold his birthright for food. Well, that birthright was given to him by God. And it was a testimony of how little he cared about what God gave him, what God provided. And so we pick that up in verse 16. When it's talking about Esau, it says, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau. That tells you a little bit of way, the way God saw him. Who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know that how afterward when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place of repentance, so he sought it carefully with tears. There is an end to the grace of God. Then we pick up the story. I'm going to pick up an example here, kind of lengthy one a little bit, in Deuteronomy chapter 1. I hope you read the book of Deuteronomy. I hope you make it regular on your reading. If you read the Bible once a year, you at least read it once. But Deuteronomy is called the second law. It's a review in a concise manner of, of what happened from Exodus, uh, Leviticus, and Numbers. 
It's, it's a concise review. So I love that. I love any kind of conciseness, any kind of review, any kind of summary. Uh, and, and you learn some things in this book that Deuteronomy about the children of Israel and the way they reacted. And I want to just kind of quickly, quickly go through verses 21 to 46, and I'll make this as quick as possible. He said in verse 21, Behold, the Lord thy God has set the land before thee to go up and possess it, and the Lord thy God of thy fathers has said unto thee, Fear not, neither be discouraged. So they come to the land. Now they left Egypt, for you that don't know the story, God sent Moses to take his children, some about two and a half million of them, that were slaves in Egypt to liberate them out of Egypt's grip and to take them into what he called the promised land, the land of Canaan, the land that Abraham had walked through and Jacob and Isaac and Jacob had walked through. And God says, this is your land. I'm going to give it to you. Not now, but I'm going to give it to you later. So the children of Israel spent about 430 years as slaves in Egypt. What was God doing? He was building a nation. He was nation building. They were rugged. They were tough. They were strong. They were doing all the hard work for the Egyptians. The Egyptians were soft. They didn't even mow their own lawns. Sounds like something happening in America today. And God liberated these two and a half million people through one of the ten greatest miracles ever performed on planet Earth, ever. And he fed them. And for about a year, they went to they went to the uh, they went to Mountain of God and got the Ten Commandments, and they sinned at the Mountain of God and disappointed God. He forgave them, but many of them died because of that. And then eventually, he took them to a place called Kadesh Barnea, a place of entry into the long-awaited the one year, about one year from Egypt. Uh, they came into a place called Kadesh Barnea to enter into the Promised Land. That's where the context of this is. So I said, there's a land set before you. Here they are at this entrance to take this land that they've so long looked forward to. And so the man, in verse 23 and 24, and he, there's the people of, of he was going to go to Kadesh Barnea, and, as a, and so they, the leaders of, of the children of Israel at that time came to Moses and said, how about just one guy from each tribe goes into the land and spies it out and see. So they went, and it says here in the story, they went in and they spied it out. And they came back, uh, oh my goodness, they came back with the fruit of the land. It was bigger and better than they dreamed of. I mean, the land was beautiful. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was fabulous. But there were some glitches. And he says uh, in verse 24, And they turned away and went up into the mountain and came to the valley of Eshcol and searched it out. And they took of the fruit of the land in, which of their, in their hands and brought it down unto us and, and brought us word again and said, It is a good land which the Lord our God doth give us. Now look in verse 26 there. This is the bad part of what they said. These 10 of these 12 witnesses, these, these uh, spies as it were. Notwithstanding, you would, you would not go up but rebel against the commandment of the Lord your God. You murmur in your tents. What you say about the sermon on the way home, God's paying attention. What you say about the preacher in the house, God's paying attention. Be careful. Be careful what you say. They murmured. Who did they murmur against? They murmured against Moses. They murmured against the leadership there. Because the Lord hated us, he had brought us forth out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Uh, they said, a little further down, verse 28, the people is greater and taller than we. The cities are great and walled up to heaven. Moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakims, that's the giants that were there, 
And then, then I said, Moses said, dread not, neither be afraid of them. In verse 32, yet this in this saying, you did not believe the Lord your God. And in verse 35, the, what happened to these people was they crossed the line that they didn't know was there. It's called the, I call it the invisible line. God has an invisible line that when you push him far enough, you'll cross it like Esau crossed it. Esau saw it, repentance, but could not find it because it, it was over. Repentance time was over. Judgment time had come. These people went into the land, spied it out. Ten of the people gave a negative report. Two of the people, Joshua and Caleb, gave a positive report, said, we, we can go in. God, Man, God took us out of Egypt. He can, he can take these people. They didn't have faith, and they said, no, we, what in the world has God delivered us up to be slaughtered by these people? How dare they say that? Unbelief, the same sin that Eve and Adam committed, the sin of unbelief, because all the root of all sin is not believing God. And so they didn't believe, and Moses, by God's order, said, well, then, not one of you are ever going to go into the promised land. You're going to wander for 40 years, 40 years in the wilderness until every one of you die. And the children which you said are a prey, they're going to go into the land. They're going to take the land. But you people for, from 20 years above and above are not going into the land. The only people going into the land are Caleb and Joshua because they believe. Well, that was some hard news. So they said, well, we'll, well, we'll, we'll go, we'll go. We'll, we'll turn around and go. We're going to pick up in verse 41 here. And then he answered and said unto me, You have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight according to all the Lord our God commanded us. And when ye had girded on every man his weapons of war, ye were ready to go up into the hill. And the Lord said unto me, Say unto, say unto them. So Moses says to them, Go not up, neither fight, for I am not among you, lest you be smitten before your enemies. Every war... And anything that you win, God is in it. You don't win by your own strength of your hand, by your prowess. You win because God allows you to win. And boy, have that clear in your mind. You've succeeded in however degree you've succeeded because God said it was okay to do that. Give him the glory. Keep it clear in your mind. That's not the sermon, but that's a tremendous principle. He said, I'm not among you. So I spake unto you, and you would not hear the same group that didn't want to go in because they were afraid they were going to get killed. When they found out they couldn't go in, and God says, you're not going to go in. God says, then they said, rebelled again, and says, no, we will go in. And they put their swords on, all their stuff, and went up to the end. And so here we said, and he says, you would not hear, but rebelled against the commandment of the Lord and went presumptuously up into the hill. That's verse 43. And the Amorites who dwelt in the mountains came out against you and chased you as bees do, destroyed you before Seir, even to the Hormah. And he returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord would not hearken to your voices nor give ear unto you. So you abode in Kadesh many days according to the days that you abode there. And they proceeded to wander in the wilderness, the deserts, a horribly looking place for 40 years until every one of them died. Now, they wanted to go back. They wanted to repent. 
didn't they? They wanted when they found out the judgment of God on them, they said, We repent. Well, let me tell you this morning, God's not a patsy. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You don't just push God around and say, Well, you said you'll forgive me. Don't try to use God's word against him. I've heard people do that. Christians do that. They try to go to the Bible and say, but God, you said you'd be careful on that. Be careful. Let me make a statement of fact. The children of Israel that came out of Egypt with Moses as adults stepped across the invisible line marking the end of God's mercy and receive certain judgment. I know this is a new thought to many Christians of our day who were raised in the age of grace. Many Christians have been fed the steady diet of God's mercy and graciousness and will forgive any and all things that we do against him. And if I want to add this, without punishment and consequences. God will forgive us, but not without consequences. You with me? The blood of Jesus Christ does cleanse us from all sin. But the things that we do in our body have consequences. The decisions we make biblically, the consequences of those decisions in this life are not erased. Now, God can choose to erase what he deems necessary to erase or best to erase, but many of the things that we sow, we reap. You sow to the flesh, you reap of the flesh everlasting life. You sow to the spirit. Excuse me, you sow the flesh, you reap of the flesh corruption, you sow the spirit, you have everlasting life. So when you sow to the flesh, you reap of it, the things that happen. If you smoke 25 years, you may repent of that, but you may also get lung cancer, which is a product of smoking. Not everybody that smokes gets lung cancer, I get that. But the majority for sure did and have. I'm for the mercy of God, brother. I'm for it. I'm for the grace of God. Don't you take me wrong on this. I'm for the, I am a, woo, I'm a recipient of the God's grace. I'm for it. Let me read you Psalm 103, 13. Let it get like as a father that pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. Amen, amen. Verse 17, but the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and the righteousness from under children's children. I praise God for that. God is pitiful to those who call on him, but he's not a patsy. The Bible makes it clear through examples that there is an end to the mercy of God and there is an end to the grace of God. Let me give you some examples of that. And the first one we're going to talk about is this the one we already spoke about. Example number one is these people that came out of Egypt that did not believe God could deliver them and deliver the land of promise to them. There was a pattern I see. I'm always looking for patterns. There's a pattern here in this passage and what happened when I was just explained to you. There's a pattern. This pattern goes not just to these people, but goes to other places in the Bible where people push God to the end of his mercy. First of all, the pattern I notice in this uh, in these people rejecting God's desire for them to take to take the promised land is first of all, they had great privilege. That's found in Deuteronomy one twenty five. They had great privilege. They were they were literally led by the hand of God out of Egypt. 
on, on, they walked across the dry land, the Red Sea, and they were all called dry land and the Red Sea. They were fed manna from heaven. They were protected by a cloud by day and a fire by night. Their clothes didn't wear. I mean, just on and on. God was with those people like no other group had ever could claim. They had great privilege. Number two, they were... They knew full well God's will, but refused to do it. Number three, they accused God of not being good. They said, he's led us up here to kill all of us and our children. Fourthly, they did not believe God's preacher, which was Moses, when he exhorted them, just trust God, trust him. In verse 29 of chapter 1, Moses said, Dread not, neither be afraid of them. The Lord your God which go before you shall fight for you according to all that he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. They crossed the line with that unbelief. And lastly, because they crossed that line, God cursed them with a final judgment from which there was no turning back. Which there was no repentance. He says in verse 35 of Deuteronomy chapter 1, Surely there shall not one of these men of this evil generation see that good land, which I swear to give unto their fathers. The invisible line marking the end of God's mercy had been crossed. Now, they repented, as I said before, to do God's will. They repented. They said, we've sinned before the Lord. We've sinned. We've done wrong. Now we'll go up. They, and if I may say, uh, the sixth thing in the pattern, the sixth point in the pattern I see is they presumed on God. Oh, how I hear so many times people presume on God. Well, he's going to do this, and he's going to do that, and he has to do this, and he has to do that. If I was you, I wouldn't command God. I don't think you can command God. There's some false teachers on television and the Internet that will tell you you can command God with his word. You can't do it. And God forbid, who am I to command God? I'm a recipient of his grace. So we see by this wilderness wanderings and those folks going into the promised land that there is an end to the grace of God, but there's more examples. I think of, I think of Moses. Moses, the children of Israel ran out of water, and God said, I want you to go to, to this particular place, this particular rock, and I want you to speak to it, and I'll cause water to come out of it in the presence of the people. Well, that's pretty straightforward, amen. So God, Moses had great privilege. This is the pattern, right? He understood the will of God, right? But what did he do? He didn't have faith and believe what God said. And I'll read it to you in Numbers chapter 20, verse 10, 11, and 12. He said, Moses and Aaron gathered a congregation before them, before the rock, and said unto them, Here now, this is the sermon they preached. Here now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? Well, there's a lot of mistakes in that phrase. First of all, calling God's people rebels, and he, he had no authority to do that. Secondly, he said, must we? He took personal credit for giving them the water, which he knew better than that, out of this rock. Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod, he smote, he smote the rock twice. He, he was supposed to speak to it. God cares about his word. He's a God of exactness. Think about it. He's a God that made everything we see. All the intricacy of molecules and atoms 
and the human cell and the cell of all these animals and all the makeup of these animals, the complexity of the universe. He did all that. He cares about detail. And when God says stuff to you and gives you a particular clear command to do something, if I was you, I'd follow it. I'd do what he said. Don't make up anything around it. But here's what happened. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts also. Now, that surprised Eli a little bit. He disobeyed the word of God. He hit the rock and said, speak to it. But God gave them water anyway, even though because of that disobedience. But it was not without consequences. That's what I'm trying to get to you today. The disobedience of Moses had fruit, but not without personal consequences to him. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron and said, Because ye believed me not, and sanctified me, and, did, and sanctified me in the eyes of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation to the land which I have given them. He crossed that invisible line. Let's look at the pattern. Moses had great privilege. Number two, he had an understanding of the will of God. Number three, he directly disobeyed the will of God in public. If I may say, embarrass God. Uh, number four, Moses received an unchanging consequences of, of judgment that he would not go into the promised land. And, if I, and number five, no amount of repentance, no amount of, of, and we're talking about Moses who stood in the very presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights twice who brought down the commandments written by God's finger on, on, the, on, on rock before the... I mean, we're talking about a guy, whoo, there's been nobody like Moses. If Moses couldn't persuade God to change his mind, who will be able to? See, God doesn't just say something flippantly. We do. We say stuff, and later on we rethink it and say, you know, that was a little too hard. That was a little too this, a little too that. And we, do, we change our minds. And we do that. But God doesn't do that. God never says anything that hasn't been forethought and understood and is what it is. And so when he told Moses and Aaron, you're not going into the promised land, guess what? They're not going into the promised land. And Moses received these unchanging consequences, and he, even though he tried to repent, let me read it to you in, in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 25, 26. He, Moses says to God, I pray thee, let me go over and see the good land which is beyond the Jordan, that goodly mountain in Lebanon. Think about Moses. Ever since he was at the burning bush in the wilderness, and God said, I want you to go to the children of Israel, and I want you to lead them out. And God went before Pharaoh those ten times, and showed him the miracles that God had given him to convince Pharaoh that this was God of heaven. And finally, Pharaoh, after every firstborn died, let him go and drove him out. And they plundered Egypt. All of the Egyptians gave him all their gold and silver and jewels and everything. Worship, give this to God. Give this to God because he said, if these people don't get out of here, we're all going to die. And he marched them to the Red Sea. Then he brought, he brought the children of Israel behind him just to show them his power. And, 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 the, and the children of Israel went across the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, hey, they said, we can go too. So they went across there. God did that so he could show them, you don't have to destroy the strongest army in the world. I can do it. 
And the Bible says they saw the dead bodies of the Egyptian soldiers floating on the shore. Now you think that'd be enough? That no matter what God said, they'd do it, amen? Ooh. How much is it going to take for you before you believe God? Moses. And what God say to that in verse 26, chapter 3? The Lord was wroth, that's uh, upset with me for your sakes, and would not hear me. And the Lord said unto me, Let it suffice thee, speak no more unto me of this matter. Uh, God tells Moses, I don't want you to ask me again. Have you heard that from your mom and dad? I don't want you to ask me again. Don't you bring that subject up of going into the promised land. Not one more time. You're not going in. God bless Moses. You know, man, I think my heart went out to him. But to whom much is given, much is required. Because he was a leader and a representative of God to the people when he presumed on God and did what he did. It was big. It was big. God said he can't go over. And so Moses physically, physically, never went over to the promised land. And Aaron physically never went over to the promised land. But remember when Jesus went up into the mount? Remember when Peter, James, and John went with him under the mount, Matthew 17? Moses was in the promised land then. Amen. He got to go in spiritually into the promised land. But physically, what I'm talking about this morning are physical consequences for the sin we commit. You get drunk. You go out in a vehicle and you hit somebody, and, and which I've seen so many times, and you cause somebody to be killed or to be crippled for the rest of their life, no matter how much you cry, those people will be damaged for the rest of their life or dead. Maybe you get damaged. Maybe you lose your arm or lose your foot or lose your leg because you did something wrong and you knew it was wrong. I don't care how much you cry or how much you come before God, you're going to live with that till you die. Physical physical consequences for disobedience is what I'm getting at. This is not preached much from the pulpits, probably from independent fundamental Bible-believing Baptists they are, but not much else. But it's Bible. It's Bible. You say, we're Brother Bill. That's Old Testament. I appreciate that. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That was written in the Old. That was written in the New Testament, before the New Testament was written. You realize when Paul penned that to Timothy, the Bible was not put together yet in the New Testament, but the Old Testament was. So when he said all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, what Scripture was he talking about? The only one they had, the Old Testament. Don't you diminish the Old Testament. Don't you try to act like the Old Testament doesn't apply to you. God forbid. All the Bible's the Word of God. It all has things we can grow. And read the Scripture there, 2 Timothy. All Scripture is given for inspiration of God's problem for, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The man of God may be perfect, holy, furnished unto all good works. And there's a little bit more in there I may have missed. Here I am acting like Jim Nott again. 
Jimmy, you and I are going to the same place. Amen. We'll have somebody leading us around. I'll say, now, what was my name again? Don't, don't you let anybody tell you their golden ear. Don't you do it. I'll tell you, my golden ear has been tarnished. I don't know about yours. But I'll give you another New Testament example, just in case you may think, well, I'm just a New Testament person. I just think the New Testament is what applicable for me, which you're wrong on that. But I'll give you New Testament. Two people, Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, verse 1 through 5. A certain man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold the possession and kept it back the price. Now, here was the deal. People were selling their lands, bringing them in and giving the entire amount they got for their lands and stuff to the poor. That was the deal. Everybody was bringing their stuff, and they were giving the 100%. But Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of land, and they want to look like the rest of the people, like they're giving 100%, but they don't give 100%. They hold back some of it. Maybe they held back 20%, you know. I don't know. But they held back some of it, and they held back some of the price. His wife also being privy to it. In other words, he and her had conspired this little plan that we'll hold back 20%, but when we give it, we're going to tell them it's the whole price of the land. And now you wouldn't think that's not a real big deal, preacher. Well, let's read on. Uh, and Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back the price of the land? And whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not thy own power? He said, you didn't have to give it. You, you didn't have to commit this sin. You, you could have kept it all. But when you brought it here and said, I'm giving 100% of it, and want to appear to be more than you are, you're not lying to these people. You're lying to God. By the way, deity of the Holy Spirit verse here, he says you've lied to the Holy Spirit, and later on he said you've lied to God, not man. He said in verse 5, but you've lied unto God. And I, Ananias, hearing these words, had the big one. Otherwise, no one has fell down and gave up the ghost. He had a heart attack. And a great fear came upon them all and heard, or he had a cerebral cortex stroke or something, but it took him out instantly. He crossed the line. And there was no coming back. That line he crossed. His wife did the same thing. The pattern I see the thing is they had great privilege. They had a clear understanding of what God expected of them. They violated God's will deceitfully and publicly, and they were judged without room for repentance. That's the pattern. Same pattern Moses fell in, right? The same pattern uh, the children of Israel fell in. Same pattern. Now, with this in mind, let's go to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 6. This is a, a study-type message, and I know I'm going a little bit long today, or they have sped the clock up back there. I'm not sure, but I won't be long. 6, 4 through 6 makes clear these two sections of the passages in Hebrews that people seem to be fuzzy about and they get confused about what we've just talked about. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good, good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away and renew them again under repentance, seeing they crucify themselves as son of God afresh. And I want you to notice this last phrase, like Moses, and put him to an open shame. That's what Moses did. That's what the children of Israel did. That's what Esau did. 
And then go to chapter 10, verse 26, 27. For if we sin willfully after we have received, remember he said we, the writer of the book of Hebrews was a born-again believer. He was a Hebrew, probably a Hebrew born-again believer, probably Apollos or Paul, whichever one. I can tell you it was one or the other. They knew language. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. But what? But a certain fearful looking for judgment, for of judgment and fire indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. In other words, he's saying there, you cross that line of grace where there's no more grace and you're going to receive consequences for your sin. I believe if you go to Hebrews chapter 12, some people have died before their time because they crossed that invisible line that God put in their life. They pushed God too far. God took him. One of them, Ananias and, Ananias and Sapphira. They would have probably lived much longer had they not done that little stint with trying to hold the price back and look better than they should. How many believers have shortened their life because they were pushing God's grace? First of all, if you have the attitude of pushing God's grace, you're in the wrong complete wrong mindset. Are you with me? Man, you're, you're egotistical if you're in that mindset. I'll just push God's grace. He'll have mercy. Like that 26-year-old arrogant individual told me, I'll, God, I'll just do this every six months and God will forgive me. Well, he's not going to forgive you without phenomenal consequences. I can say that in authority of the Bible. Hebrews 10, 31 said, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's New Testament. That's New Testament. So what we've seen today is we've seen an overemphasis on the grace of God and the underemphasis on the holiness and judgment of God. And consequently, you got a bunch of people who are living haplessly and carelessly and worldly, thinking, well, no matter how I live, God doesn't care. No matter what I do, God doesn't really care. But I'm telling you this morning, and I end with this, God cares what you do. He cares. Take God seriously. Take God soberly. Take God carefully this morning. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that you take these words, these simple and at some time not so clear I've spoken. And may the Holy Spirit take them and communicate them in the way you want them to come to your children. Oh my, fear the Lord, the Bible says, from New, New Testament, Old Testament, from one end to the other, the fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom. When we get to the place where we don't have any respect for God, we just feel like he's some sort of an old, an old senile patsy that just is going to forgive us and everything we do is going to be okay. We've sinned against God in our image of Him. We've made Him into our own image, not into what we see in His book. Help us, Father. Help us to flee from the appearance of evil. That's how far we're supposed to be away from it. We're not supposed to see how close we can get to it. We're supposed to flee from the very appearance of it. Father, help us. In Jesus' name we pray.
If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com, or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church Bonita Springs, Florida. Also, you could call the church office at 239-947-1285. Thank you, and God bless.